Amen. So I just kind of wanted to recap a little bit um, <clears throat> some of the places that we've been in terms of salvation and um, the different aspects of salvation. We've already looked at everything dealing with conceptual salvation. So we've talked about foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Now, who can define for me uh, what does foreknowledge refer to? You remember? Not Jonathan. I'm waiting for somebody else. Because I know you know because you talked to me about it last time. So I want to hear if anybody else. Russ, you have any idea? Okay, but is it any anything sp- more special than that, or particular than that? Oh, uh, the knowledge of um, those who uh, will be called to him. Right, right. So it's like a saving knowledge, right? He has a saving knowledge of his people that separates the knowledge, the general knowledge he has about everything, right? Because he knows everything ahead of time, right? He knows the devil in that sense. So when the Bible says that he foreknew us. He doesn't simply mean he knew about us, he knew that we would exist, he knew what choice we would make, he knew what life we would live, right? Those types of things. But uh, it really refers to the fact that he decided to know us intimately. It's almost part of God's determination, his will, to enter into an uh, intimate knowledge with us through salvation. You know, Carlos, you, you had a... Yes, um, I was... <clears throat> yeah. And he brought that up in, in the context of losing your salvation. Right. Would that fall into our conversation now? I mean, that would, that would obviously fall into the doctrine of perseverance, you know what I mean? And uh, we'll deal with problem passages like that, you know, but um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's no different, you know, than the Apostle Paul saying something like, you have fallen from grace, Right. Uh, so it's not so much that you actually went from a saving status to a non-saving status. I think the blotting out of the book, uh, your name out of the book of life, just really emphasizes that you are completely, uh, in, you've, you're completely cut off from the possibility of salvation. Uh, that's a good text. I'll have to, I have to uh, uh, get back to you more on that one. That's a, that's a really good. Where is that at? That's in uh, Revelation. Uh, I can't remember where that's at, but uh, yeah, he will blot your your name out of the book of life. He will not. Well, look it up for us if you can, <clears throat> if you know where that's at in Revelation. But we'll go on because it's pertinent to this too, you know, where it says, um, <clears throat> you know, here not only foreknowledge but then predestination. And we looked at predestination. Predestination tends to be a you know obviously a very controversial. Uh, subject and it's it's difficult really in our day and age in our modern context you know to minister uh, the word of God to people that have never been exposed to predestination uh, that have never been exposed to the doctrines of grace the doctrines of election and the sovereignty of God um, uh, you know I know that for myself it took me years to come to terms. <clears throat> excuse me, to come to terms with these doctrines. It wasn't overnight, uh, particularly the doctrine of the atonement, but even predestination, it was such a 
difficult philosophical problem for me to think of God being sovereign over all things and then foreknowing some people and then predestining some people and not predestining others. And it really caused me to examine my idolatrous heart and why it is that I want God to be the way I want him to be, uh, that I want God to be this way and not that way, you know, and uh, my sense of human fairness and all of this beginning to exalt those types of things above the sovereignty of God, the mind of God, you know, so it's almost like these issues dealing with, you know, conceptual salvation, the, the the, the aspect of salvation that goes back into the decrees of God, the eternity of God, into the mind of God, um, they really challenge us as far as our total worldview. You know, are we going to have a man-centered view of things, or are we going to have a God-centered view of things? Does God do everything to uphold our glory, or does God do everything to uphold His glory? Is He seeking to manifest His worth or our worth? That's ultimately the question that's set before us. And uh, these, are, these are difficult uh, worldview issues. I feel like that's where we, get, we find our joy anyway, is realizing it's for His glory and not our glory, because we never come to a complete enjoyment of God when we are trying to make it about our glory. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I can honestly say, I mean, it's like Charles Spurgeon said once, you know, when he understood the doctrines of grace for the first time, he felt that he grew like from a child to a man. You know, he, he had matured so quickly in just grasping these heavy, weighty truths of Scripture that he really, you know, got out of the ABCs of Christianity. And ironically, that's what I'm preaching about today. But, um, you know, he went on to more mature conversation about God. And that's really why these doctrines are so important, you know. Um, even evangelistically, you know, I've, I, I tell college students at UNT, I say, look, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. I'm not going to hide anything from you. Uh, does the Bible talk about predestination? Absolutely. And there's plenty of ministries on this campus that refuse to acknowledge that the Bible talks about that. Or as soon as you bring it up, they just want to, you know, scoot it under the rug, so to speak, you know. Uh, but we can't do that. We have to be honest with the Word of God and what it says. So predestination is a difficult philosophical doctrine but there's no question that it's taught in Scripture. And I think, if you guys go with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, just to kind of see um, <clears throat> how we ought to think about predestination, just a real practical uh, way that we ought to think about this is not really the way that we typically think about it initially. We initially think about it as a controversial issue, and it is. However, Look at the way that Paul talks about it in, in, at the end there, verse 4. You see the grammar, kind of the grammar is different on some Bibles. In love goes either with verse 4, at the end of 4, or in verse 5. It should go with verse 5, even though it's <clears throat> contained in verse 4. Remember, when the Bible was originally written, there are no verses. No chapter breaks, no verses, Okay. The authors of Scripture didn't put chapter 1, verse 1, you know, they didn't write verses. It's just straight through, just like a letter, okay? Verses were added a lot later on in, the, in church history. But, so verse 5 should read, In love he predestined us. And so if our initial gut reaction to the doctrine of predestination detaches us from the love of God, we know that we're thinking wrongly about it. 
And we have to get to the place where we can say predestination ought to magnify the love of God to me. That God would, in his grace, choose me, predestine me. But what do we want to do, right? We want to play the role of God and say, why didn't he choose this person? (laughs) Why didn't he choose somebody else? Right? And we want to begin to dictate to God what he ought to have done if he would have been a good God, a loving God. That is not the way that um, Paul thinks about it, and that's not the way we ought to think about it if our mind is subdued to the lordship of God, right? If our mind is subdued to Scripture, like Job says, rather that we put our hand over our mouth and stay quiet, right, than to enter into a competition with God where we question him about his doings. Who can say to him, what have you done, and who can stay his hand? Nobody. We can't possibly compete with God. And again, we looked at uh, election, the, the doctrine of election, all these, thing, all these things going together. Obviously, foreknowledge, God's decision to set his love on somebody covenantally. Predestination, God's decree to choose, to, uh, his decree to set our destiny in motion. And election, God's decree to choose us for the purpose of salvation. Uh, different aspects of these doctrines, but very important. You're going to find language in the Bible about election all over the place. You're going to find that God chose Israel. And uh, you're going to find that many in Israel perish. And so what do we do with that? Well, obviously, there is sort of national election, and there is salvific election, right? Uh, uh, God is always working those things out. He's always... Uh, he, he, he always, you know, we can say, well, God has chosen the church, but then many in the church perish, right? Because they had a false profession or a false conversion or what have you. So obviously, God can choose on a corporate level, you know, and you can, you can have this language of corporate election, but individual election is really the essence of soteriology, uh, and then we already talked about effectual calling. You remember the importance of effectual calling. Effectual calling means that God summons us to salvation, that God calls us through the gospel, through the word of God. He calls us to himself in saving faith. He, he, he produces life in us through the call. So the call goes out through the gospel, through the word of God, and then um, after that, God regenerates us. He makes us alive um, through this gospel call. He quickens us. And then we've come to this point here where then we determined that, okay, well, there, we understand God summons us through, e- through effectual calling, and then he regenerates us by his spirit. He makes us alive. So where does faith and repentance come to play with all of that? Does it precede regeneration? Regeneration? Does it follow regeneration? Is it synonymous re- regeneration? And what we determine is no. Repentance and faith or conversion, sometimes so, uh, textbooks will have conversion, right, is uh, a, a consequence to regeneration. It follows regeneration. It's, it's the effect of regeneration. So first, first, you have to have life. And once God gives you life, you have now the, the ability to repent, Right? The ability to repent. Uh, that's why in the Bible, the, the word uh, to be born again is never in the imperative. There is no imperative form of the term born again. 
or being born again. There is no command to be born again. When Jesus says you must be born again, he is stating a fact. He is not giving uh, Nicodemus a command. The command is to repent and believe. That's the appropriate command, right? Any questions? I see some puzzled looks out there. No? You got to be careful how people look at you while you're teaching or preaching. Right? Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> faith or repentance and faith, all I know is that something changed in me. So when I would share even my testimony with others, it was never about repentance. I, but I knew I was repentant in, in my mm. own godly sorrow. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. So now, of course, when I explain it, what it means to be saved, of course, now that I know what I know now, um, about repentance through faith, but you can actually repent without really understanding that, right? I mean... Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, if you would have talked to me the minute after I repented, I mean, I, you would have labeled me a heretic. <laughs> I would have got every doctrine under the sun wrong, you know what I mean? So that's the process of sanctification, you know, that, that we begin to undergo. We progressively undergo sanctification and uh, begin to reverse the noetic effects of sin, meaning the, f- the, the sin and how it affects the mind. But that takes time. I mean, a person, a person can't on the spot be saved unless, well, let me make this distinction, because there is a difference, right? Uh, think of the Apostle Paul when he got saved. What happened to Paul when he got saved is not so much that he learned all this new doctrine in a totally new way, right? He had a background in the Bible, uh, one scholar said that when Paul got saved, he wrapped all of his messianic theology around the person of Jesus Christ, and it made sense. So for some folks, like your children, like Bailey, she is being taught the doctrine of Christ. She is learning about uh, what it means to be a Christian, the gospel, so that you know when she came to saving faith or if she comes to saving faith, it's not necessary, you know, she's not a first-generation Christian. I was. I had to learn from scratch everything about the, the Bible, you know, f- about doctrine and all of that. So uh, God uses the, the light that we've been exposed to, right, uh, in, in, in our, the totality of our conversion. Coming to faith to the point of <clears throat> hating my sin, and I realized that okay, I did hate my sin. There was that change of my heart that took place, that regeneration, and almost instantly I repented. But I and I had I had a background in, in doctrine at this point already. I was in Bible college. I had already done right. Bible doctrine and stuff. But I was studying repentance. Like, okay, I do that, you know, kind of thing. And it was very having actually experienced repentance and faith the way I had heard all these, you know, Paul Washer preach about it and so many others, um, finally made sense. But it took, you know, the regeneration of my own heart to actually make it 
have it mixed up. Mm, mm. Um, mm, 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 mm. I think last night when we were out walking and um, and I, I kind of sounded like what you just said, Jim, Jim Williams, was, you know, after I got saved, I don't think we could have said, I couldn't have said the gospel. Right. The greatest sin of all. Yes. Right. Amen. Oh, for sure. But still, you can pick up on things, whether they, you know, know about the repentance or faith. It's the heart. You'll hear it through their heart. Yeah. And you kind of pick up. It's just true conversion, you know, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, being gracious, I mean, it's very important, you know what I mean, because people are at different stages of of their spiritual walk, you know what I mean, and their knowledge and their intake and their understanding of theology, you know what I mean. It's just... Uh, uh, a lot of times it just boils down to how a person reacts to those things, I think. You know, like, uh, how, how do they react to being confronted with truth? You know what I mean? Um, do they have an aversion to truth? Do they not want the truth? Do they not want to learn the truth? They're happy with their little Christian bubble as it is, and they don't want anybody coming in and interfering or upsetting what they have. You know what I mean? That's really not the, the heart of a disciple, a disciple wants to learn, wants to grow. If you have something to teach me, I want to know it. I want to grow. You know, I tell you what, I, uh, at the Gospel Coalition, uh, where I was at this past weekend, you know, or this past week, Monday, when, when was I there, Trish? I lose track of time. I don't know where I am or what I'm doing. But, huh? Sunday. It's right, Sunday. I went there Sunday. So the next day, I spent three hours with one of the leading theologians in America, uh, Lane Tipton. Um, a, a gentleman that I respect uh, doctrinally very, very much, 
And I literally sat there listening to him for three hours. We had a, the Lord just blessed me with a uh, one, one-on-one conversation with Dr. Tipton. And I was able to ask him question after question after question, difficult questions. And he was literally enlightening my mind, you know, and, and, and just clarifying. I mean, he clarified so many different little things for me, you know what I mean? And uh, you, you never stop growing, you know what I mean? And, and th- that never ends, you know what I mean? Uh, that never ends. Now, it's one thing to maybe not have grown as much. It's another thing to have an aversion, you know, uh, to, to, to something like that. Even at that level, you know, Dr. Tipton, I appreciate that, but I'm, I'm quite content where I'm at with my theology. Thank you. <laughs> you know what I mean? We could do that on a low level or on a high level. It's ironically, but that's what I'm talking about today in a sermon. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. Amen. And and the Lord took his disciples aside for several, you know, months and uh, ultimately years, right, before he just unleashed them on the world. You know, he taught them and poured into them, you know, and, and explained to them the nature of the kingdom of God before he allowed them to go out and then begin to teach. They had a lot of things wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, de- all the way to Pen- uh, right before Pentecost. You know, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they're so still so confused, right, about some some very basic things, and and they still needed to be taught. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it is. Because um, growing up, it's time in my life, I thought Jesus was the only person that loved me. Right. And that was before I was a Christian. You know, I mean, <coughs> I knew that there was a God, and, I, and in my situation, really, right. you know, and so the first time I heard Ray Comfort say that, I thought, well, we're done. <laughs> That's right. Uh, because, I, I mean, I, doesn't he love us? Yeah. Well, the, 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 I've often called the love of God the difficult doctrine of the love of God because it's not as easy as that. Doesn't he love us? Uh, I'm actually preaching on this in, uh, for our May conference. I'm preaching on the doctrine of the love of God that has been hijacked uh, by our postmodern culture and used as a license to essentially uh, live a, a lawless life. Right? So love and lawlessness, that's the way that many people see the love of God. Love of God equals a license to live lawlessly, to disobey, right? Uh, so what you see in the Bible, Joanne, is primarily that the love of God is not this general thing that is applied to all people everywhere in the same way. I would say that God does love everyone in terms of his common grace. Uh, I can think of the, uh, the passage of the rich young ruler where he walked away from Christ, rejected Christ. I think it's Mark that says uh, Jesus loved him. And now the hyper-Calvinists don't like that. <laughs> Hyper-Calvinists would be those that, that would go so far as to say we don't even extend the gospel to people unless we see signs that they may be elect. In other words, that they have interest in the gospel, but prior to that we don't even extend the gospel to all people. Because God has elected only some, why would we extend the gospel to all? So they reject the general call of the gospel. I myself, because I've looked at scripture 
and because uh, I had the same question that you had. Uh, I myself have come to a settled conviction that I do not tell people God loves them. I think it's irresponsible because in their mind, that can mean anything. It can mean, well, God is for me. God loves me, certainly. God wouldn't, I mean, judge me. If he loves me, why would he judge me and send me to hell? He doesn't send people to hell who, if he loves them, right? And so when I look at the pages of Scripture and you come to, a, uh, come to understand that nowhere in the Bible will you find an apostle of God or even Jesus Christ going up to a stranger and saying, God loves you. Uh, because the love of God is discriminatory. The love of God is covenantal. The love of God in, in a saving way is only for his people. Um, uh, I have one wife. And there are many wives in this room. And uh, yes, in one sense I can say I, I love all the wives that are in this room, but I don't love them like my wife. So hopefully that helps you to understand that that's the way God sees it. Yes, he loves, he has a general, we could say, love, and, and, but what, you know, theologians, they distinguish between God's benevolent love, the fact that he is good, right? He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust indiscriminately. He makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust indiscriminately. But the benevolent love of God is different from the salvific love of God difference. I love all the wives in this room, but I have a special covenantal love for my wife where I can say, no, I do not love other people's wives. I have a brotherly, yeah, benevolent love. What about our children? <clears throat> I know, see, this is one of them three hours where we want to sit you down for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> right? And the tape's rolling. Yeah. every ounce of my being and I yes. so can yeah. we tell our children even though we don't know yet if they're saved or will be saved but to a degree they're innocent right right, right. can we well I, I innocent well, you know, like, in a sense of you know uh maybe yeah they don't have a fully developed knowledge no one is innocent Right? I mean, David, Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. From the womb, children go astray speaking lies. They are vipers from the womb. So in, 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 in the eyes of God, we are all vile and wicked from the womb. Now, modern-day evangelicalism, what I just said, I mean, you know, would wipe the church out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because uh, they don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. They want to make a gospel that's palatable, Right? And, but, but the reality is, is that's unfair to the child to begin to give, to give, to give that child a, a hasty assurance of their relationship with God, of saying, God loves you. God, you, God uh, uh, you know, is uh, in a loving relationship with you. No, he's not. So what I would do is I would use biblical terminology, biblical, I'm a stickler on this, 
right? Biblical vocabulary. I would, you look at the Old Testament, right? I don't think you're going to find one verse in the Old Testament where uh, children are told that God loves them. But you know what they are told? The wonderful deeds of the Lord. You know what they are told? The miracles that he did. The power of God. They were supposed to be even instructed in songs about the power of God, the, 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 the majesty of God, the goodness of the Lord. And so what I would approach uh, what I would approach your children with is tell them of the goodness of the Lord. God is so good, look what he did. God is so good. Don't, if a child ever comes to you and questions the love of God, tell them don't ever question the love of God, sweetheart, because he sent his son to die. That's how much God loved the world. Now, the love of God is conditional. If you repent and believe, then then he will have you, right? Of course. Oh, man. The greatest thing I heard is a pastor, David Hawking, uh, one of his children was born. He said he grabbed him as soon as he was born, grabbed him, picked him up, held him up in the sky and said, you need to repent of your sin. <laughs> I know, right? Poor kid. I teach them that, but I guess when it comes to love, God loving children, you know, automatically. He loves the children, of course, in the, that benevolent fashion. But remember that the love of God, uh, uh, the, the, we could say the, the covenantal love, the salvific love of God is covenantally bound to Christ and to his elect. In love, we just read, he predestined us, right? You can't say that about everybody, right? Yes, sir. This is great. I mean, this is theology. This is, this is, I like to call this the point of contact. It's where the rubber meets the road. Have you read D.A. Carson's book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God? Uh, I have not. You mentioned that term by verbatim. That's right. I know he's written that book. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. That's I. I have not. I would definitely recommend that book solely because it's D. A. Carson, and I trust him, and I know that what he's going to say is going to be right on. You know what I mean? The the difficult doctrine of the love of God. I think it's more though than just the questions we're dealing with in here. You know, about the benevolent or the salvific love of God. It's a shorter book, too. It's not mm-hmm. a really yeah. thick book. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this the love of God is inseparable from his decrees. That's why we cannot, it's inseparable from his choice, his election, his foreknowledge, his predestination. That's why we cannot rush out over the scriptures and generalize it as to say the love of God is just one thing. It is not. It is not just one thing. It is a two, it, it is a two-tier, right? And so we, God gives us these simple illustrations so that we understand that like a husband and his bride. You know, Jesus did not marry everybody. He married his bride. 
and he loves his bride with a special covenantal love. Yes, sir. That's right. Because, you know, these, like you're saying, you're saying there's different aspects to the love of God. Because when you say love, just in general to the population, they just think whatever their mind is taking love to be, but they're not being specific with their understanding. So, so could that be the, the cause of this, that people have just lost the meaning of language and the definition when, when they're not being specific? Is that, That's right. Is that the issue? <sighs> yeah. Uh, we live in a generation that Carl F. Henry... Uh, one of the greatest theologians of all time of the 20th century. He was the founder of uh, Christianity Today. Carl F. Henry said that from the moment that we're born, especially now in our technological age, children from the very earliest ages are put in front of a television. And what they learn from the very earliest stages of you know, their cognitive ability is to distrust propositional truth. Because they're watching cartoons that are not true. They're watching commercials that are full of gimmicks and lies. They're go to, they, 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 they learn that their society operates in a very deceptive, uh, you know, lie-laden culture. And so, and then they go to college where they, <laughs> and they, hear, they go to college where they are encouraged to undermine propositional truth and to deconstruct the whole idea of the possibility of truth. So yes, uh, this is part of evangelism. We have to deconstruct people's worldview before we reconstruct it, right? We have to scale the language barrier because when somebody tells me, well, God loves me, tell me what you mean by the love of God. What do you mean? He loves me. It's not that simple, my friend. When God truly, when, when a person, when a Christian says God loves me, that means God covenantally has bound himself to me like a, like a husband to a wife. We are bound together by covenant, and we can't be separated. Is that true about you? Well, I want it to be. Okay, then repent. <laughs> right? Repent and believe. But we do not just go out and lavishing people with assurance that, have no, that, that, that don't, um, they don't live uh, the Christian life. They don't have no evidence that they deserve that assurance, right? I mean, even more than that, like I don't really assure you that you're saved. I'm not here to convince you, okay, of your salvation. My thing is how do I, how do I minister to you in such a way that I know you're availing yourself to the way that God assures you? Because as far as I'm concerned, Romans chapter 8, it is, the, it, is the, it is the job of the Spirit to assure your heart. Not my job. The worst thing I ever heard was you know, somebody came to my old church and gave me his story about his false conversion. He was a false convert and finally ended up converting. He went to his pastor in agony, struggling over the state of his soul. He knew he, there was something wrong. He was raised Christian, but he knew something was off. He went to his pastor and said, oh, that's just the devil messing with you. That's just the devil messing with you. Just don't worry about that. You just, you're, doing, you're doing okay. Pat him on the back, send him out the door. That's horrible. That's terrible. And um, so I'm not here so much to, to give this infallible assurance to anybody because that's God's job. My job is to facilitate, are you availing yourself 
Are you giving the Spirit opportunity to minister to your heart in that way? Are you in the Word? Are you in fellowship? Are you in the church? Right? Are you worshiping God? Are you under the Word? You know, all these things. Um, yes, ma'am. Yeah. And then back to the, you know, you know, where I was getting at what has been on my heart is a, a friend that I've been ministering to and talking about her, con- you know, conversion and all that. Um, what I'm getting from is, you know, when you hear this a lot, their salvation was based on just like a, a change in their life, like a different season. So basically her testimony was when I became a mother is when, you know, I just, you know, I became protective of my children and so forth. But just what you were saying. That's moralism. Right. And that's what I get a lot from her. Oh, yeah. I I go through the Word of God, and I can can tell that um, it's not based on solely the Word of God. Because you were talking about, um, you know, you, you see their fruit, and you question them, and then the answers I get, it doesn't line up with, the scriptures, you know, it's just not in the word. As a matter of fact, she's she's going way off, and so that was why that was on my heart yeah. too, as well. But I also want to clarify about that. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, they don't have. Yeah, if they don't have. If they don't have, I know that about you. Uh, you know, if they don't have fruit befitting repentance, you know, um, then that's what we have to challenge people. It, it's difficult. You have to pry moralism from people. Mm-hmm. You really got to pry it from them because they think. You know, I'm doing the whole American conservative Christianity type thing, especially in the South, the Bible Belt. Everyone's a Christian, right? <laughs> right? Till they go to the bar with their buddies from right. work, yeah, right? Our neighbors say, well, you know, since they became parents, you know, they felt it was right to give their child into church. You know? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So that's kind of like what I'm. That's kind of difficult because, like in California, I mean, where where you know where I grew up, it's much more black and white. <laughs> it's like nobody's trying to play the middle of the road. It's like you're either all in or you're all out. You know what I mean? People in California, you approach the average non-believer in California, and they'll tell you straight up, absolutely not. I'm not a Christian. You know, and not as many people are trying to play the the, the religious game. Yeah, it, it makes it. Oh yeah, it's it's a different challenge, right? It's a different challenge. Moralism is very deceptive. Uh, self-righteousness is hard to pry from people. You know. God bless America. Fox News Christianity. <laughs> well, you know, you have Sean Hannity saying, you know, oh man, this is on tape. I better be careful. Nobody send this to him. But you have Sean Hannity on tape saying, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm Catholic. Huh? Right? So, I mean, I guess the Reformation meant nothing. I mean, I guess the, the distinctions between Roman Catholicism and, and biblical Christianity are not that important. It's so important, folks, that people, many, many fine Puritan pastors died, burned at the stake by the Catholic Church because they refused to acknowledge that the Pope was the vicar of Christ, the, the, the altar Christus, the, the other Christ on earth, that, 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 uh, that you know, that the gospel was a, it based on, uh, you know, our merit, that, that Mary was a, a joined intercessor with Jesus Christ. And, and many Puritan pastors were burned alive because they refused to bow the knee to Rome. And, uh, you, know, no, you know, so, I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate where we're at. But. May I uh, just 
Yes, sir. right and that, that common grace that common love that he has for all people is something that uh, we can't deny you know, biblically I mean, it doesn't, I mean, isn't, isn't, I mean, if we talk about the love of God in that sense, and again, I don't think it's helpful to use the word love as much as, you know, grace, you know, um, uh, 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 but, you know, again, I mean, it says love your enemies, even, you know, so you, that you'll be like your heavenly father in heaven. So, I mean, God loves his enemies, again, not in a salvific covenantal love, but in a common grace level love, a benevolent love, he loves them. And, I mean, think about the love of God in that sense. Boy, I mean, that he, I mean, that he allowed Hitler to know what it means to taste good food, to enjoy a sunset or a sunrise, to know the pleasure of, of this and that, to know the grace of the general grace of life, that God would be so merciful, right, to, 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 to let a mass murderer Enjoy the, his benevolent love. I mean, God is so gracious, it's breathtaking. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to bring up Hitler's dog? Let's close in prayer. Yeah, wow. Oh, good point. I guess to you know Joanne you you brought up this whole issue thank you for thank you for derailing the whole class <laughs> no and it, it, it uh, you know no that's good because what is what does Galatians say you know those who live by the spirit are led by the spirit you know so we're led by the spirit this morning I think you know to to talk about this issue because it's bound up in the decrees of God the love of God is bound up in his sovereignty so we have to flesh this out you know but the love of God is also part of God's freedom that God is free to love whoever he wants to love, however he wants to love them, right? You were free, right, weren't you, Joanne? To love Wally in a special way. Nobody coerced you to have, well, did he? <laughs> that explains it. That's how you got so lucky, buddy. <laughs> okay. It's, in a salvific way. Oh, oh, yeah. So that's the culture yeah. we live in. 
Jesus loves you. And that's a great point. Yeah. I like it. It came hardcore. I like, you know, that's good. <laughs> no, you're exactly right because it becomes a cultural, uh, a cultural euphemism that makes the love of God mean nothing. It, it, the love of God becomes this vacuous term that really is just this catch-all. It's like a, it's like a drip pan. Just catches everything religious and spiritual, right? God loves you, man. Don't worry about it. That's just the devil messing with you. I don't know why I got to put a Texan accent on it, but that's that's the way it works out around here. Nancy's in the back. No. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, the original language, that's a, good, that's a good question, okay? So does the Bible in the Greek and the Hebrew, does it help us out with this? No, it does not. Because agape can be used for uh, various applications. It's actually exegetical fallacy that many people make because it's phileo or it's agape or it's, you know, one of the other terms that specifically, deter- that, that alone will determine how it's being used. That's, not, that's just not true. So you got to be very careful, you know, not to make that mistake. No, you know. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yep. You're the one that brought it up. <laughs> 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 that's not a clarification. That's an accusation. <laughs> no, 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 no. Many of our... Many of our hymns, and Jonathan could probably tell us many of them, many of our hymns are loaded with heresy. And uh, what kept you going was, was God's grace. And by His grace, He brought you to, to the point where He turned your heart so that you could genuinely love Him. Our love of God prior to conversion is idolatry. We love the way we want God to be. So what happens is this. A gay person looks into the well of religion and he sees his own reflection. So God must be okay with gay people, homosexual people, with the lifestyle. Not the, of course, he's okay with them as persons. They have, they're the image of God. And, and, and of course, God uh, sent his son to die for homosexual people. Okay, so we're not questioning that, but, uh, you know, uh, an agnostic looks into the well of philosophy and says, well, God must be uh, uh, an agnostic. You see, and so what happens is we, 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 we end up turning God into an image of ourselves. Exactly what the Bible says. We want a God in our own likeness to suit ourselves. We don't want, you know, what did they tell Jesus? We, we, we will not have this man to rule over us. We want a different, you know, uh, it says the Son of Man is going to be like this. What son of man is this that you're talking about? Jesus is talking about the real son of man, the, mess, the Messiah as he is. And they're saying, what kind of son, what version of the son of man are you trying to foist on us? That's not what we want, right? We don't want a son of man that's going to die. What are you talking about? We want a son of man that's going to crush our enemies, the Romans, and bring Israel back to its political military glory that it had back in the dynasty. See? So they had this idolatrous view of the Son of Man that had to be discarded in order for them to enter into the kingdom of God. 
<laughs> no, no, no. Then we'll all be bored in here. I'm completely out of time. That's how fast time goes when, you know, we're just um, having more fun than God allows. No, I'm just joking. It's good stuff. It's good. It's, it's very good to talk through these things, um, even though I didn't cover any of my Sunday school lesson. That's okay. That's, that's okay. Um, we... Yeah. <laughs> oh, be careful. <laughs> Let's go to worship. God bless you guys.